0: Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Fred Kemp. I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, and on behalf of the Council, um, you know, I, I don't know how many of you come to our events on a regular basis, but I really like this seating and the round seating so much more. I think it's just a, a much better way to be the- theatrical, and I hope everyone today in today's panels will try to follow that instruction. On behalf of the Council, I'd like to welcome you to the launch of Talon Manual 2.0 on the international law applicable to cyber operations. Uh, to those of you watching online, I encourage you to join the discussion by following at AC Scowcroft, at CCDCOE, and using hashtag Talon Manual, and for the uninitiated of the world, it's Talon with two N's and, and two L's, Talon Manual. Um, uh, so, hashtag Talon Manual. It is Atlantic Council's central mission to meet global challenges and navigate political and economic change by engaging the transatlantic community and our allies around the world. And our feeling isn't just it's our duty to do that, it's the outcome if we don't do that in this defining moment of history, will be uh, a chaos or less benevolent actors filling the void. And more challenging global times require, in our view, even deeper engagement with our friends and allies so we're committed to that we're therefore honored to join forces with the nato cooperative cyber defense center of excellence and the embassy of the kingdom of the netherlands to the united states it's just an honor to have the ambassador here today uh, to host this timely conversation we intentionally called our cyber operation at the atlantic council the cyber statecraft initiative because we thought that a lot of the statecraft of this area of the world, who's responsible for what? What do you do if there's an Article V violation? What part of the international governments will actually adjudicate when there's a conflict? Uh, all of these incredible uh, uh, questions just aren't sufficiently handled. I'm also delighted that the founding director of this statecraft initiative, now at Columbia University, Jay Healy, is here as well. Um, uh, The Talon Manual is the most comprehensive and truly global analysis of how existing international law applies to cyberspace, cyber statecraft. In 2013, the NATO Center published the first Talon Manual, which was focused on international law implications related, related to cyber operations that justified the use of force or occurred during armed conflict. The Atlantic Council hosted the launch of the first manual four years ago, and we're delighted to welcome this sold-out house, as full house, uh, for for 2.0. Since 2013, with the introduction of groundbreaking new technological developments such as the Internet of Things, our society's dependence on connected technologies has increased. As a result, we've noticed a notable uptick in disruptions to these technologies and disruptions of the societal uh, institutions they underpin, and this will only accelerate. Here at the Atlantic Council, this growing dependency and its implication for not only national security but also public safety and global economic stability has emerged as the central focus area of our cyber statecraft initiative. The Talon Manual 2.0 expands upon the original to add critical analysis of international law to cyber operations occurring during peacetime, as in the recent uh, Democratic National Committee hack. Uh, in In a moment, Lise Vihul, the project manager of the Talon Manual from the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, will explain the process and the contents of the second manual in more detail Uh, after some opening remarks, and I'll get to that in a second. We'll then move to the panel discussion examining the broader implications and application of the manual. But before Lise takes the stage, I want to extend a special welcome to our distinguished guests uh, joining me in opening this event. Ambassador Hennessur is the ambassador of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to the United States and a noted expert on cybersecurity collaboration between businesses and governments. Ambassador, it's great to have you with us. Sven Sakov is the director of the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center uh, of Excellence in Tallinn. And it's wonderful to have you here, Sven. Uh, he previously served in various senior positions in the Estonian Ministry of Defense. Uh, please also join me in welcoming our panelists. Uh, Professor Michael Schmidt is the director of the Tallinn Manual Process. He brings several years of experience as the chairman of the International Law Department at the United States Naval War College and the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Megan Stiefel is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative and founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants. She previously served as an attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice and Director for International Cyber Policy in the National Security Council at the White House. Great to have you with us, Megan. Rutger van Marising is senior policy officer at the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, working on international security issues in the cyber domain, including the Hague process consultations on the Talon Manual 2.0, so a really powerful group of panelists. And then uh, lastly, someone I've already introduced briefly, uh, Jay Healy, Jason Healy, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and Columbia University. One of the leading experts uh, on cyber conflict and security, and the former director, as I said previously, of our cyber statecraft initiative. Uh, so I look forward to a lively and uh, engaging discussion. And now I'd like to uh, welcome Sven to the stage. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, Fred, and uh, uh, for the opening remarks. And um, good afternoon, also from my side. It's um, Sure, to, um, sure, very good to be in tropical uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> they, uh, when I left Tallinn with two ends, uh, as uh, very uh, cleverly noted, and um, the, the, the city which has a manual, it was zero degrees there, and I mean Fahrenheit, so it is a bit of a change for me. Um, i first like to thank the Atlantic Council for the, the support uh, provided, uh, the meticulous organizational effort. Uh, uh, by the staff, especially uh, Einie, who is uh, leaving the room, as I mentioned her name. The, um, uh, also, uh, special thanks go to uh, the Deutsche MFA and uh, ambassador here uh, for their support through the Hague, Hague process, what you're going to hear uh, soon more about. Uh, and. Uh, uh, also, the Estonian Embassy and the Baker and McKinsey law firm uh, for our support during the, the launch. The, the main bunch of support, of course, goes to office, to the IGE, the International Group of Experts, and to the, the leading engines of this uh, work, uh, Mike Schmidt and Lise Vihul, who we're going to see very soon here at the stage. Since I have a podium, I'm not going to go away without actually telling. You some things about the CCDCOE, uh, because very often people do not know too much about what we do. Um, uh, clearly, uh, you know that we are involved in a Italian manual um, issue, um, but this is not the only thing what we do. We are not just an organization dealing with legal uh, matters so what we are we are a Uh, a small international organization. We belong to our nations. Uh, Despite the name, uh, we uh, are not part of NATO and uh, we are uh, not speaking on behalf of NATO, so please keep that uh, in, in mind. What we are, we are a research institution, a knowledge hub, a training facility and exercise facility And we do basically three types of things. We do applied research, we train, and we exercise. We organize exercises. Um, um, So if you are, and and we do those three types of um, activities in in four focus areas, what we are having, technology, strategy, operations, and law. So if you are a techie, you might know us probably, or you will probably know us uh, for a lock shields exercise. You see that on on the roll-up here, uh, which is, to the best of our knowledge, biggest and most complex international live-fire red-on-blue technical uh, cyber defense exercise. Um, Last year, we had more than 700 people participating, 20 national teams uh, trying to stay alive uh, at the hands of a red team, which was, of course, very formidable. If you um, are from the military, um, uh, you might know us uh, for the work we do on developing the NATO cyberspace operations doctrine, uh, or the support what we provide for NATO in um, the exercise um, planning. Um, Many people know us for the SICON conference, which is an annual conference um, held in, in the summer in Tallinn when the sun is up pretty much all the time. It's, uh, I think either that or the generous boost that we provide is very, uh, a very um, a popular event. Uh, and the news is that last October we had the pilot uh, CYCON also in the US uh, in cooperation with the US Army Institute of Cyber. Uh, uh, so basically, we were helping them to organize psycho like in the U.S., uh, took place in D.C. In, in, in October. And the next one going to be in Washington, D.C., if you want to mark into your calendar on the 7th of November this year, meaning 100th uh, anniversary of a Bolshevik revolution, precisely. There's no connection there. Uh- they, uh, and of course, when you're a lawyer, then you probably know us because of the Italian manual. I guess that uh, actually there might be lawyers in the world who know Estonia because they looked up what does Tallinn mean, um, because they know that there is a manual. Um, Fred already kind of said on, on how they, the scope of, a, of Italian manual has expanded from uh, 1.0 to uh, 2.0. Uh, in a very simple terms, really, I can wrap it up in a way that when the first one was looking at war, then now it's looking at both war and peace regimes. In other words, we have gone full Tolstoy, war and peace now, with this manual. Um, Without further ado, uh, I will shut up now and uh, give the floor over to the ambassador from the Netherlands. Thank you very much.
2: Good afternoon. My name is Henning Schuur. I'm the ambassador of the Netherlands, very happy and proud to be here. Thank you, Fred, for your uh, kind words. Uh, I hope my office noted that I am a cyber expert. Uh, Some people in the office think that I'm stuck in the time of Tetris. Uh, That is now uh, officially debunked by uh, the head of the Atlantic Council. Thank you very much for coming, I think that the reason why you might also be here is that this uh, conference, this seminar, takes place at an important point in time. I can, I can, not, I can just compliment you uh, on your, your sense of timing uh, to have this conference now. Uh, I have to almost assume that the arm of the Atlantic Council reaches all the way from Washington into into the Kremlin, uh, to make all those extra things possible, to make sure that you are here. This is an important point of time. Uh, And it reminds me a little bit about um, the importance of internet. Um, Internet has been uh, compared to the invention of um, the printing press. Uh, What we have experienced with internet, I think, is phenomenal. Uh, and I think that uh, if you look at the printing press, you also see immediately the danger. Nobody uh, has experienced that more than us in Europe. The printing press brought about uh, an enormous wave of possibilities resulting in the Renaissance, but also brought about an enormous wave of instability resulting, among others, in the, sch- in the schism of the Catholic Church, uh, and you can see that there is all kinds of possibility opening also with the internet. The internet is a force for good and can be a force for evil. And I think we have to learn from the history, and we have to all band together to make sure that this internet, this cyber, that cyberspace that opens for us all, will be a force for good, a force for peace, and a peaceful movement around the world of which we all benefit and i think in doing so we have to realize that not all, all not everybody around us or everybody in the world might share that same goal that therefore uh, it's very important that we are here it's very important that's why i'm so happy to be part of the lunch to celebrate uh, the launch of Tallinn 2.0 uh, we in the Netherlands always have placed a high value on an open, accessible, uh, secure and peaceful cyberspace. And we have already from the beginning, we, some of you might remember, we started the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, and we did there. The thing that we are good at in the Netherlands, we brought together people from academia, people from the government, uh, people from company to basically talk to each other uh, and, and exchange knowledge and expertise on a global uh, le- level. This is the next step. The Talent uh, Manual 2.0, which also is called officially on the international law, applicable to cyber op- operations, is the next level uh, on, that, on that path. Not for nothing, we are involved. I think we pride ourselves in the Netherlands that The Hague is the, the UN capital of international justice. Uh, that is part of uh, our, our input uh, in this uh, in this process. Um, and uh, through the, the Hague process, we have tried to bring together the people who were the authors of this new manual with state actors, uh, people, representatives of governments to say, you know what, you have to work together to to manage this beast that we have unleashed and to make sure that there is a manual. Uh, Because we think it's the responsibility of the international community to ensure that peace and security and stability are maintained in accordance with international law. Uh, And that's why we need a manual uh, like this. Um, we also are very happy that we are here uh, with people from, from NATO, with people from, uh, from, from, from the, the, the real Tallinn. Uh, we are happy that uh, NATO has recognized that cybersecurity is in the operational uh, domain. We have a responsibility uh, there Uh, And we have to, all of us, although it's not a neighbor of a NATO institution, through Tallinn we have to share the expertise that we have uh, in uh, in cyber defense through the NATO Center of Excellence. Um, I hope that we have, and I think we have contributed through the Hague process, uh, to further the cause of uh, this Talon manual. We believe in bringing together people from academia and people from the government to take the next step, because the next step uh, will be uh, very, very necessary. The application of international law to state conduct in the digital domain is for us a bedrock of international peace. This is the next frontier that we all have to conquer. And I think that the Tallinn Manual is basically our guide for the next frontier. I don't know, I forget the name, but there was this wonderful book about uh, the the guides if you travel through outer space, uh, uh, sort of a science fiction kind of book. This is it. This should be it. If you travel through cyberspace, if you try to be part of that next journey that I think the whole world is undertaking, I think the Talon Manual should be your travel, travel guide. Uh, and therefore, I'm very happy to be able to help launch this very important work. Thank you very much.
3: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just see if this works. Works. Well, I can't begin to express, and I can't express this strongly enough, how excited we are at the CCDCOE to be launching the Telling Manual 2.0 here in Washington, D.C., together with the Atlantic Council, that we're back here at the Atlantic Council again, and together with, uh, with the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. For us at the CCD COE, this marks an end to a very long journey, and we're happy to have so many of you here in person, as well as via the internet, celebrate with us. What I'd like to do during the next couple of minutes is to tell you a little bit about the genesis of the telling Manual, why it was written, and for whom it is meant, and what it is about. And when we look at the genesis, We actually have to go back in time an unbelievable 10 years already. We have to look at what happened in Estonia in 2007, as well as the cyber operations that occurred in the armed conflict between Russia and Georgia in 2008. Not only were those cyber operations a realization for the international community that a new national security threat has emerged, but moreover, those cyber incidents made uh, legal advisors in states, as well as policy folks ask whether what happened against Estonia and what happened in cyberspace in the Russian-Georgian war, whether those cyber operations were acceptable as a matter of international law, or whether this is something that the international community should not tolerate and should regard as unlawful. And to answer those questions, what we did at the NATO CCDCOE was that we convened a group of international law practitioners and scholars, Um, There were about 20 of them, and we asked them to start answering those questions. And although the telling manual has become kind of famous, uh, uh, you might not know that it falls into a long-standing tradition of producing international law manuals about how international law regulates various types of state conduct in various contexts. You can see that this tradition goes back to the late 19th century, and in the last couple of decades... uh, a couple of manuals have been uh, produced that look at uh, various state activities um, in, uh, in, on the seas, in the air, as well as there is an upcoming uh, manual that looks at uh, state activities in outer space. So the Tallinn Manual nicely falls into this uh, fairly long-standing tradition of producing international law manuals. Now, the first Tallinn Manual, as was mentioned, was published in 2013. As was also mentioned, this book did look at the so-called high-risk, low-probability events. In other words, those that are most critical from a national security perspective. So the first talent manual was helpful for states in assessing the legality or unlawfulness of the Stuxnet-type cyber operations, the Saudi Aramco-type incidents, as well as those cyber operations that occur in the context of kinetic hostilities. However, while we were writing the first telling manual, we were acutely aware of the fact that even though those types of incidents are the most critical from a national security perspective, states on a day-to-day basis are not grappling with these types of issues, but rather those that fall below the threshold that do not entitle states to, for instance, exercise the right of self-defense. And so even before we published the first manual in 2013, we actually embarked on this uh, somewhat longer journey to look at the peacetime international law that regulates the below the threshold cyber operations. And uh, this is what we are celebrating here today, the Tallinn Manual 2.0. This includes both the peacetime law analysis that we produced since uh, 2013, as well as the the analysis from the first Tallinn Manual. It has been reprinted in this book, which is part of the reason why it's so big. We did not write all of this in the past three, four years. And so with regard to this country here, the second telling manual is helpful in in looking at the lawfulness or unlawfulness of all of of those incidents that uh, you can see on the the screen. The Sony type incidents, uh, those targeting OPM, the DNC hack, as well as the the cyber operations against Dine. All of those are so-called below the threshold for which Tallinn Manual 2.0 should be helpful. All right, and a couple of words about the process. Uh, the, the, both of those manuals were written by a so-called international group of experts. Both groups were led by, led by Professor Mike Schmidt, uh, And I can actually see a couple of other members of uh, the international group of experts here in the audience. We have Professor Eric Jensen from BYU. We have Andre Kozik, an international law scholar from Belarus. We have Gary Brown, formerly US Cyber Command, today Marine Corps University. Um, But uh, with regard to the second telling manual, uh, not all of those experts came from the Euro-Atlantic area. In fact, uh, we also had international law scholars from China, from um, uh, Japan, from Thailand. So this really uh, is a reflection of, uh, of international law as it applies globally. All of those experts who comprise the international group of experts participated in this project in their private capacity. This means that this book really is an academic product. It is not uh, reflective of NATO policy or NATO doctrine, and neither is it meant for um, negotiations. It's not a negotiating document that is ultimately designed to end up in an international treaty. But really, it's meant for primarily state legal advisors to assist them in thinking through the legal issues that arise when either their states are planning to engage in certain types of cyber operations or when their states are taking hits from abroad and to assess what the international implications in these situations are. What the whole exercise is about is that uh, the manual looks at the pre-cyber international law, those treaties that do not mention cyber anywhere, and and applies and interprets that pre-cyber international law in the cyber context. So it was a big interpretive exercise. The way the book is set up is that it consists today of 154 black-letter rules. Those black-letter rules reflect consensus among those uh, experts in the international group. And then each of those rules is accompanied by a fairly extensive commentary, which then explains what the rule means, as well as lays out any differences of opinion among those experts. And I can tell you there were differences of opinion almost always. Um, The the whole process... uh, that happened within the international group of experts was further supported by a fairly rigorous peer review. We had more than 50 peer reviewers, international law scholars and practitioners from all over the world and in addition to this academic non-binding peer review we also got very useful input from states within the realm of the hate process which was uh, um, co-launched and co-hosted by the CCDCOE and the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs. And these are the contents of the manual. Um, the, the takeaway of this is that, as you see, there is so much international law that applies to state cyber operations as well as, um, to an extent, cyber operations undertaken by, by non-state actors. and. Uh, We can see that really cyber operations do not occur in a legal vacuum. There is a robust body of international law that regulates those cyber activities. And in the manual, we look at how they do so. And with that, I will wrap it up. And I'm happy to give the floor over to the panel and uh, let you soon engage in some of uh, Q&A as well. Thank you.
4: (laughs) Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Atlanta Council. It's really great uh, seeing so many people that have been um, with the Cyber Statecraft Initiative and the Atlanta Council for so many years. It's great to see you back. Uh, if this is your first time here, um, really welcome. And I think this is really going to set us off. And and you'll you'll see why um, the Atlanta Council has been a place to come and and hear what's happening. Uh, I love the timing of this. Uh, For many of us, we're going to be out at the RSA conference next week in San Francisco um, on on computer security. And uh, and so we're all going to get bragging rights because we now have our manual and everyone's going to be talking about the Tallinn manual. And uh, and if you're here, you're going to have the inside scoop on this. So we've put together a fantastic panel on this um, to walk through. And uh, I'm not going to cover the bios. You've already got an introduction and you have the bio book. Um, and with that, I think I just want to tick right in. And, and, you know, Mike, you've been doing this for seven years. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Lise happier than when she's on, you know, <laughs> kicking off the farewell tour for this. Um, because you've done so much work and it's been so hard, and, and, you know, any other observations that you wanna, you wanna kick us off with to start? Yeah, when Lee
5: started the project, she was 11 years old, at least it feels (laughs) like that, and my hair was a different color, so seven years later, boy, are we happy to be finished. So I thought what I'd do, there are just a couple comments we wanted to make. Uh, The first two are easy ones, and they're conclusions at the end of a seven-year process with 20 of the world's best lawyers. The first one is seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, when we started this, There was an awful lot of chatter about whether international law applied in Mm -hmm. cyberspace. Now, I have to tell you, the first group that met, there were just five of us that met to scope the project. It took us about four minutes and 22 seconds to figure out that was a (laughs) nonsensical (laughs) argument. Clearly, international law applied in cyberspace. Clearly, it did. But the question was how it applied, given the unique nature of cyber operations. And that's what this project is about. Today, hopefully, the argument that that cyberspace is a wild west, is a normative void, has been put to rest once and for all. And now it's time for states to take the baton from the Stahle Manual Group and to begin to figure out what their legal policy is based upon the conclusions, uh, in part, that we drew. The second question, in fact, I was asked that we had lunch today with the ambassadors uh, and I had an interview this morning. The second question is, there there seems to be a view that there are different perspectives on international law depending on where you're at. There's the eastern view and the western view and the northern view and the southern view. Our experience, because in the second IGE, we had people from every, uh, I'm sorry, the international group of experts always give yourself a really cool title and then have an acronym for it, okay? So <laughs> the, in
4: the... The Iggy. Yeah, in okay. The, the Iggy, Iggy. The
5: Iggy. Maybe that wasn't... That didn't work so well. So in the second international group of experts, in the second team we brought together, we were truly global. There were people from every continent. And good lawyers. The best. The best guy from Japan and on and on and on. And my takeaway from that is... Yeah, lawyers may disagree on international law, but generally, we agreed on the basics. It did not matter if it was Andrei Kozik from Minsk or Eric Jensen from uh, BYU. If you put them in a room, which I often did as director, put them in the room when with a difference of opinion, when they came out of the room, they generally came to roughly the same conclusion. Indeed, sometimes international lawyers from the very same country were more divided than the international lawyers from different countries. So, my takeaway is we have some ground from which we can develop now norms because I believe that we're all operating from rough, roughly the same perspective. So, the big elephant in the room that we had in the project, and I I think the big elephant was, is this going to be a helpful project Mm -hmm. from a state perspective? Because what you must understand is that we were not writing for academics. We were writing for countries. We were writing for legal advisors. We wanted to give people at U.S. Cybercom a tool which they could use as they began to deconstruct what had just happened and how they could respond to it within the framework of international law. There was some concern, certainly with Tallinn, One, that we were muddling the process. Who are these people going off purporting to understand, tell us what international law is? And indeed, states at least uh, at the, at the uh, higher level held us at arm's length. Now I will tell you behind the scenes, if you get old enough you know everyone and there were lots of phone calls, hey, what are you guys doing, what do you think about this and so forth but formally they held us at arm's Mm -hmm. length because they were extraordinarily nervous about what we were doing. We were Mm -hmm. going to produce a book that would seize the normative landscape from them. Well, we did produce the book. Uh, The book, Tallinn and One, uh, probably sits in every office, in every MFA, uh, legal advisor's office, in every MOD, legal advisor's office in the entire world from Washington to Beijing. So, the second round was very, very different. You heard the ambassador. They approached us. The Dutch approached us and said, what could we do to help you? What we said was, what we want, because we're committed to the notion that states and only states make international law, what we want you to do is to bring states together. And the Dutch were quite extraordinary. In three sessions, they brought in 50 nations, including all the P5. And I'm not talking about some low-level guy in the legal device. Sometimes they're senior legal advisors, sometimes entire delegations, to feed us their views in an unofficial, non-attribution, closed-the-door environment so that the manual would at least reflect the views of states. Now, we, we reserve the right to look at a state, and we did that sometimes and say, you know what, that's interesting, but that's nonsense, so we're not going to include that view in our manual. But that did not happen very often. So this is a manual, Tallinn II is a manual that is informed by international organizations and is form- informed by states. And so we hope it will be of use to them. In use to them, how? Well first of all, if it's one of the rules, it required unanimity, as Lee said. So if you're a state legal advisor and you got 20 guys, you got a kid from South Texas and one from Minsk, agreeing on precisely the same text, then you got yourself a real uphill battle to try and run contrary to that norm. It doesn't say we make law, but it's going to be a tough sell to other states. More important than that, this manual, unlike every manual that was cited on the slide that Lee showed, this manual for the first time said we don't have all the answers. Cyberspace is new. There is a lot of gray out there. So although we can, we can agree on general principles of the law that apply in the cyber context, the interpretation and application of those rules can be contentious. And instead of trying to solve the problem, instead of trying to prove that we knew more than you, what we did was capture all reasonable views and put them in the manual. So when you read the manual, sometimes it says, the majority said this, the minority said that. Sometimes it says few. That means one or two. Sometimes it says we acknowledge a view. That means none of us agreed with the view. But a state (laughs) put forward the view and we acknowledge that states get to play in international law. And so we included that view as well. So this is the most important uh, piece of the book. The most important piece of the book isn't where we agreed, it's where we disagreed because that's where the play should be with regard to states. States should be looking at areas where we disagreed and saying that's where states Mm -hmm. need to roll into the game and start firming up the norms, deciding what their legal policy is, and very importantly staking out that legal policy either through actions or opinio juris. So uh, opinion of yours being the expression of the state's legal position in a very public manner. So I, I guess that's where I'll conclude. We're finished. And a number of us, Lise and I, will go to Australia, where we will turn our attention to space. We've already called ourselves the new space cadets. We're finished with cyber. And now it's for people like Gary Korn uh, and Eric Jensen over at DOD. It's not our job anymore. It's your job to take what we've done and start figuring out what the legal position is of the United States, not so much on the black letter law positions, but on those positions where the group of experts could not
4: figure out what the right law is. And, and it really strikes me, because even after 2013, I would hear from some colleagues in saying, is a cyber at- attack an act of war? This is an interesting question. It's like, No, it's not. Like, that was an interesting question in 1999. Right. Maybe that was an interesting question in 2012. But really, the question is, under what circumstances is a cyber attack an act of war? After 2013, that wasn't an interesting question. It was where the manual got it, wrong or, you know, got it right or got it wrong. And, and that's what I loved about that is because it gave you that starting point of those areas of agreement or disagreement. And it really struck me. When I first started meeting with you guys as part of the process, probably 2010, I think, right. I always thought that this might, I still thought this was maybe some contention. Every expert I would run across that wasn't actually a lawyer would say, oh man, no one agrees when you know a cyber attack and where it, where it crosses you know, and and, whether it, and what you can do and if you can respond with kinetic uh, to, to a cyber event. And then it just struck me in uh, it, w- it was uh, Professor Winkfield here that was talking and he was at the front of the room and he was saying, if this happens and then here's what the law says. And I was just waiting for everyone to jump on him because this was supposed to be contentious. And I was so surprised to hear it not being contentious, at least among the legal. Um, scholar community. And we're so happy. Um, so that was Mike um, uh, talking about the process and we the legal scholars. And we're so glad that, that Megan Steele can join. Um, because you were, you've done this in both sides, right? You were at the Department of Justice. And you're having to look at what actions are lawful or unlawful um, in cyberspace. Um, and you brought that to the White House. Um, but in the White House, you're also overseeing international cyber policy. And so not just a, uh, what the lawyers thought, but also what policymakers and in, in, in tying that into America's diplomacy. So I'm really kind of fascinated in, in, in how, you, how, how you hear this and you respond to, to, to what we've come with today.
6: Sure. Um, so thanks for including me in the discussion. I'm delighted and honored to be with this esteemed group of people and am very appreciative of the efforts of the CCDCOE and the, uh, the uh, Embassy of the Netherlands uh, and all of our colleagues on their work. Um, you know I, to me this is a, a, a step in the process that uh, is not surprisingly consistent with us policy that's been evolving over the years, but um, the work that the US government has been undertaking, as most of you know. Uh, within the group of governmental experts has been around this discussion that Jay just mentioned of uh, does uh, international law apply to activities in cyberspace and yes that was a long-standing settled question but it was important that this group of experts that group of experts uh, through the GGE process acknowledged it Uh, then the question became how does it apply and so for me this the the one of the great benefits of this manual is is that it Helps uh, further the di- further the dialogue on those issues of how international law applies to state action in cyberspace. And, uh, and can I ask? Can
4: I, so maybe not everyone knows the GGE process. So maybe can you just do maybe thirty seconds and, and just highlight kind of what what the UN GGE was?
6: I'll do my best. Yes, uh, it has been a few years. But so uh, the GGE process, the Group of Governmental Experts process, grew out of um, the United Nations. Uh, uh, now I'm the what is it, the, um, the arms control. Uh, there? Yeah. Sorry? Was he injured I think so. No, yes. it was, um, in any happen. event, there have been two, yeah. the first committee, thank you, that was the word I was blanking on, uh, the first committee effort, and so there were two, uh, two uh, several year-long processes where the group of governmental experts, which began initially as a small number of countries, uh, David can remind me exactly how many. Um, then grew on to similarly to this process, grew from a, a small group of, of folks to a larger group of gov- uh, governmental mm-hmm. experts, speaking about uh, again the application of, of international law to state action, and came out with a unanimous position and paper. I think it was twenty fifteen. Uh, again, re- re- uh, reiterating that, that yes, international law applies. The question is how does it apply? And so, as I was saying, this is a is a great uh, tool to further that mm-hmm. conversation. I think. Um, its particular utility uh, goes not just for is it useful not just for those of us who are sitting here and in uh, Western capitals around the world, mm-hmm. but also for uh, given the proliferation of, of tools uh, to the number of actors out there, be they state or non-state actors, thinking about uh, how international law applies. There is. While I don't expect criminal groups to be pulling out the Talon manual, uh, for, for countries who are less experienced in this space, considering using a new technique to undertake, uh, express their 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 authority in this space, I think hopefully this will give them an opportunity to undertake some critical analysis before they, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better word, hit enter. Um, so. yeah.
4: yeah, and it really struck me. The, um, I'd have a lot of folks that you know and, and Mike covered this and saying well there are no rules of the road. And that, and that's just simply not true. Or people say cyberspace is borderless. And well that's not really true. I mean a lot of the concepts like sovereignty do 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 fit right. very strongly into right. what you talk about here. And even when I hear people say well do we need a you know we need a new treaty to handle um, what's going to cover in cyberspace? And I say well we there are treaties, right? And that's so much of what the is happening here, is saying we've got treaties, we've got the Geneva Treaty, we've got the Hague Convention, we've got um, all sorts of treaties that do apply here. And, um, and that's why I was so happy when the GGE said existing, interna- uh, existing international laws apply, because now that does mean we are more rooted in this. Um, and did that, um, and that comes up a lot, and I mean, was it, in over 2015, we really saw America pushing norms. Yes. Um, uh, Secretary Kerry in mm-hmm. Seoul, um, laying out the, what the U.S. norms are going to be, that really picked up through, through the G Twenty and other countries. Um, and, and how does international law fit in with, with those norms that, that the Obama administration had been pushing?
6: So I, I, I again would think that this is um, well. The discussion here will reflect, or the discussion in the manual will reflect the, the governments, uh, the U.S. governments articulation of the norms that it has uh, put forward and is uh, through work with uh, a number of entities, including the G20, uh, has come to consensus on uh, this notion that there are certain norms that are obviously reflective of uh, customary international law, building upon treaty law, the other thing I would say about the the utility of this manual is the the method through which that it through which it was developed so the notion of collaborative uh, consultation not only with academics but also with practitioners in in capitals uh, I think it's truly uh, useful mm-hmm. because it doesn't uh, it, it reflects what's in the minds of these individuals reflects maybe not in all cases as we've learned mm-hmm. but uh, I think it would be hard pressed for uh, anyone will be hard pressed to uh, take disagree with one of the rules that the manual articulates, given the collaborative yeah. and uh, consultative nature through which it was developed with states not only again in western capitals but around the world yeah. uh, but I think to your point to your question jay the, the the idea of norms development i think is is as Mike was saying, getting to the areas where we might disagree, presumably we 're we're not disagreeing on norms because they reflect uh, customary international law, but looking at the the norms development I think will will hopefully evolve to a place where we're getting to answer some of those great questions yeah.
4: and and you know especially in the in some of the UNGGE and other con- conversations with China um, I'd heard you know, specifically about China, but again, this is in general in diplomacy, a lot of times a country doesn't want to be left out. If it looks like there's a growing consensus, they say, we don't want to be the one that's left out on that. We at least need a few allies in this, on this position. And that's why I think this is going to help, because it really starts cementing that in in what that norm is going to be. That's why I was so glad to hear that you had a a Chinese scholar involved in this. Uh, One of the, so as an American, I think I've got sometimes a jaded view of the, of of international law. And it was with a, um, a conversation I was having um, with, with someone from the Netherlands, and they said, "Look, we're 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 not a, a huge power, a superpower like the United States. We can't rely on power um, to defend ourselves. We've got to rely on law, and that was uh, on international law. And it was, and it just flipped the switch in my mind to think about that different relationship that you have." Um, with international order. You know, can you enforce order because you've got strong armies or, or do you look for strong order based on based on, um, based on the rule of law? And so we're really happy that um, okay, you're on, on the panel today. Um, and I didn't even know until I read the, um, I was going to ask why the Netherlands has been so active in this and the ambassador covered that. And, and in the foreword by your foreign minister, I, I didn't know this, that it's even in the constitution that <laughs> the, um, the Netherlands government needs to push um, on uh, uh, the, uh, to help promulgate international law.
7: That's right. Um, I mean, it's on our Constitution, Article 97, I believe, that the <laughs> government is is ordered to promote the development of the international legal order, and we, mm. we take that very seriously. Um, so, I mean, let me just explain a little bit about why we uh, jumped on this opportunity and why we, uh, uh, undertook uh, the activities that we did um, I mean the ambassador ma- mentioned that you know at having a, a, a free and open and secure and a secure and a peaceful cyberspace has really become a uh, strategic uh, interest for the Netherlands because we're, we're just so dependent on it uh, but as you can imagine we have you know strong concerns about the direction and the development of the, the strategic threat environment and, and some mm-hmm. of the activities that we've been seeing uh, over the past few years um, and we're we're concerned that it's beginning to resemble, beginning to display tendencies of 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 a, of a classic security dilemma, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, you know everybody's developing their capabilities uh, because they're afraid of the other guy, but, but that in turn uh, leads to more uncertainty and fear on, on the opposing side, and you know that gets you into the risk of an arms race, and, and it gets you not in, into a very good place. Um, so the, the question is, you know, really how do you create and maintain stability in, in, under that uh, security dilemma uh, where, where you have uh, multiple players? Um, and, and I'm no expert on, on game theory, but I, I understand that there's a couple of ways to maintain stability or, or to, to, ma- to manage a security dilemma. Um, and first option is you, you, can, you can stop playing. You can withdraw unilaterally, but you know, that's not really re- realistic. Uh, uh, secondly, you can uh, you know build up your own capabilities in such a way that you don't have to fear mm-hmm. anyone. So you can you can aim for deterrence. And, and by the way, we are not as powerful as the U.S., but but our, our guys they do okay. They're, they're, <laughs> I, I, I have did, no fear. Did there. not mean to insult <laughs> Dutch. Sorry, but um, yeah. you know, in the long term, you're right. That you know that doesn't is is not a very reassuring uh, a path to take. Uh, so the third option is to try and negotiate your way out of a security dilemma to, uh, to, to try for a long-term structural mm-hmm. solution by uh, trying to build what, what we call an, a normative framework uh, mm-hmm. to regulate cyber operations between states. Um, and in our view, I mean, naturally, naturally given our history or our, the role that we've played uh, over the last century and in promoting uh, international mm-hmm. law. Uh, We we feel that international law should be the main component of that uh, normative framework uh, because we strongly feel that that is, you know, international law is is mostly sufficient to regulate most uh, activities that are of concern. Um, And it's really international law that can provide the the measure of predictability and and stability and and who knows, even a a degree of accountability uh, to help maintain stability. But that only works when everyone is on the same page. So we really need what the DGE called common understandings about how international law applies. And that requires that we really make international law more accessible, more understandable, and more Mm -hmm. practically applicable to not just the main cyber powers, but everyone who can be affected by this new threat. And I think that is where the manual can really play a very useful role. That's
4: great. I've got a follow-up question on that. But if you want to start catching my attention, I'm not going to do a lengthy Q&A up here because we've got such a fantastic crowd here. I'm sure you're going to have lots of questions. If you want to start catching my eye, we'll start, we'll start getting the microphones around if, any, if, anyone, if anyone has questions. Um, and uh, is that a? Okay, um, if, uh, if someone has a question, just catch my attention. If not, I'm gonna jump, jump right in. Cause I, I really like what Rucker did there. Cause right, he was saying this is about the dynamics of cyber conflict. And we need to worry about how, um, you know, sometimes we'll talk about state behavior in this space. Um, and, and that's useful, but tying it in with what are the dynamics of, of, of cyber conflict and how are those similar or different to conflict in the air, air land and sea. Um, so the security dilemma says when one side is building capabilities, the other side will see that because of the anarchic nature of, of the world, right? there's no world government, so when you see someone else arming that you build up your arms too and you end up in spiral escalation. And there's another way that you can get yourself out of a security dilemma. Um, it, well, my colleague Professor Jervis um, at Columbia said a security dilemma is doubly dangerous if it's offense dominant and you can't distinguish offense from defense. Sound familiar? Um, And so he said, if you can get defense um, in such a place to get defense advantage, so it's not offense dominant, it's more defense dominant, that's another way out of the security dilemma because then as each side builds their own defensive cyber capabilities, the other side now says, all right, I know, I understand this is defensive. And so, this is one thing that we've been talking about here at the Atlanta Council um, with a report we launched uh, last month called uh, A Non State Strategy for Saving Cyberspace. If we can make cyberspace more defense advantage so that the attackers don't have the advantage, that way, if the US is spending on, say, cyber command, or as we're building new cyber commands, it's more difficult for the other side to imagine that's all going to be for, for, for offensive purposes. Um, and so, thanks, thanks for bringing that up. I'm, I'm curious. Megan, so you're both a lawyer and of course wanting to push international <laughs> law as part of that, but also you were working with America's diplomats in, in the State Department. Um, so this maybe a little awkward question, but did you, did you, how did you work between that and saying, all right, we've, we, we being both a lawyer and in, in your own way a diplomat? Was there, was there, t- was there inherent tension in that, in being a practitioner in this space?
6: I don't. I don't think so. Um, maybe that was by virtue of the benefit of, of the wonderful colleagues that I had within the Department of State, including with, with uh, in, in L, which is the Legal Office, um, yeah. and some of whom I know contributed to the report. Uh, but also, I think um, perhaps because of where my my where you sit is where you stand. My viewpoint was <laughs> from the Department of the D- Department of Justice, which was frequently. Uh, Seeing things in a common uh, light, as our colleagues at state were. Um, hopefully, that's not portraying too much. But I th- I, the short answer is no. I, yeah,
4: I, it's, it's good. And it was interesting. You know, the U.S. was the first country to, that really had a position like Chris Painter's. You yes. know, that was America's top cyber. And it seems like. Many, you know, how, how, do you know how many countries are doing that? It? it seems like there's several dozen that are. Yes,
6: that are doing uh, the it number has something. grown exponentially, and that. Uh, is obviously a, a positive thing, we think, um, to the extent yeah. that, that uh, governments are thinking about these things collectively as yeah. opposed to uh, one component of a government kind of leading the charge and the others suddenly catching up. Yeah. Uh, we don't think that we the, the US government at the time when I was there, and I think at this point yeah. still doesn't think that that, that approach is, is, uh, that approach is Less preferable to one where there's a unified uh, collaborative yeah. approach. And, and I
4: think that might help with the manual because now yes. there's a there each you've got a, a head diplomat. Uh, okay, we've got uh, one in the back there, and then uh, if I could get an, another mic in the in the front here, uh, and then we've got uh, this gentleman here. Okay, yeah, in the back. Is
5: that Nick? Uh Joe Marks from Nexo. Oh. Thanks very much for doing this. Um, I'm wondering if you can go into some more detail okay, about. Started, uh, where the beneath the level of armed conflict lines are drawn in the we, second version stand, of this manual. Can you stand
4: just so we can, we can, we can see you? Right, great, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, Joe
5: Marks from NextGov. I'm wondering, first, if you can uh, tell us some of the interesting things about where the lines are drawn beneath the level arm, of armed conflict in this second version of the manual. And then second, you've mentioned, a couple of people have mentioned the DNC breaches as one of those beneath the level of armed conflict uh,
6: incidents that this would be useful addressing. Address it, and, and what does uh, what can we does this manual tell us about that breach and uh, how how it relates to laws and norms?
5: So we need to be careful about terminology. So let me do law professor stuff first. <laughs> we need to distinguish between the issue of when does a state's cyber operation constitute what's called a use of force under international law in violation of uh, article 2 of the UN charter that's what we most often think about violating 24 the uh, the experts agreed that anytime there is a cyber operation that causes a- destruction or injury that's beyond the de minimis standard in other words incidental minor standard that that constituted a use of force by another state We need to be careful, because that doesn't necessarily mean the victim state can respond with a corresponding use of force. That's a different body of law known as the law of self-defense, and it has its own uh, criteria. Now, the big question is, what about cyber operations that manifest with consequences below that level, below that destructive level? There, that's uh, an area where I was talking about. That's a gray zone. We agreed almost uniformly. There were a couple dissenters. They would be wrong. Uh, (laughs) We agreed almost across the group that you can have a cyber operation that is not destructive and it is not injurious, but it could qualify as a use of force. But we could we could come up with no bright line test because there's insufficient state practice mm-hmm. to look at and states have not spoken to the issue. And we weren't in the business of making law. That's what states do. So what we did instead is offer a series of factors that states will consider When determining whether to characterize a particular cyber operation as a use of force, I want to say there are eight or so factors. Things like how direct were the consequences. In other words, if you have a cyber operation, the consequences occur very quickly, immediately, or in the longer term. How severe were the consequences obviously was a factor. Uh, Were the consequences measurable or not? And on and on and on. Now, your question was framed in terms of armed conflict, and that's why I want to be precise. The term armed conflict in law, in international law, is the term we use for what a non-lawyer would call war. Okay? <laughs> war in a sense of the law of war, what we would call the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law applies. There are two types of of these conflicts. One is international armed conflict, conflict between states. And the other is what's called non-international armed conflict. The non-lawyer would call it internal conflict. In the case of international armed conflict, the experts agreed that international armed conflict exists, and therefore, the law of war kicks in. In other words, you can directly kill people and so forth. Uh, The rule of proportionality applies and so forth when there are hostilities between states. And again, we agreed that in the event that there's an exchange between two states and there's damage or destruction, and most of us said no matter how slight, you're in an armed conflict for as long as that lasts. In an internal armed conflict, we said it is theoretically possible for an international, I'm sorry, for an internal conflict to occur by virtue of uh, the operations of a non-state group against a state, but it, it'd be mm-hmm. very, very, very difficult mm-hmm. to meet the legal criteria and it would take an hour uh, to to explain that to you.
4: It, it really caught me when, as I've been listening to, uh, to the deliberations o- over the course of the manual, is that when you cross that line over to armed attack, mm-hmm. it's not a cyber war, it's a war, right? I mean, once you're past that line... When you cross
5: it, the line of armed conflict, armed conflict. it's a war. Right. And it's, it's a war in the sense that if it was initiated by cyber means, you can have, since I'm at the United States Naval War College, the Seventh Fleet engage in kinetic operations against the other side. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, there was a second question. Uh, it's a DNC hack question. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow! I thought I'm, you
4: were avoiding that.
5: No, I'm very surprised you asked that. I had not anticipated that particular <laughs> question.
4: So uh, uh, can, can we pull? Let's hold on absolutely. DNC for a second, and then because uh, I think Rico well, wanted to. What,
7: what struck me about your question was that it really demonstrated yeah. how much uh, the line between uh, armed conflict and peacetime is still the. The standard against huh. which we measure all these these incidents, uh, and it's not surprising because you know first of all that's 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 serious stuff. That's what every state is most fear, uh worried about. Uh, but also practically, you know, um, that's what the discussion has been dominated by because we had Tallinn one, mm-hmm. we had you know the International Red Cross did some work yep. on that. Um, so that was just what. It, was on everyone's agenda you know that was what everyone was familiar with now I've been all around the world uh, set in many many conferences and workshops and and, and seminars uh, with other countries where we've you know talked about the, you know the need for this normative framework the need to get some diplomatic <laughs> solutions to this threat um, and um, um, you know, that was the case there as well you know the question of you know when is cyber uh, an armed attack when has it crossed the, the threshold of uh, use of force that was always, always on the agenda but you know i can tell you from the you know, the colleagues from from state department who are here were uh, uh will have experienced the same thing when you talk about those kinds of issues with you know countries from southeast asia or mm-hmm. latin america or africa or, the, or no, those are not the issues that they're concerned about. Hmm. That's not what's uh, relevant for them on a daily basis. So, my hope is that the the release of the manual uh, can help us get away from that discussion a little bit and, and 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 start focusing more on on those issues that are more relevant on a daily basis and uh, to get and to have the peacetime international law as, as the point of departure rather than the mm. uh, the use at bellum or the use in bellum. So, so. Uh, Please.
5: Um, that's a wonderful comment. Let me tell you a little story about Tallinn and One. When we were doing Tallinn and One, um, we produced a manual that dealt only with the use of force and the law of war. That was the first draft. States weren't formally involved, but we knew some people that worked uh, for government. And one of the people I knew uh, was uh, Sir Daniel Bethlehem, who was then the legal advisor at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. and. He's a great mind and a, a great lawyer. So I said, listen, Daniel, would you mind taking a look at our little book and tell <laughs> us what you think? And he said, sure. And so I went down to the FCO after he had plenty of time to look at it. And he had it was terrifying. I went into his office, and he had the book, the draft, and it had, must have had 350 little Post-It notes, which I assumed <laughs> were all mistakes. Uh, but at any rate, he said something very, very important. He said, the problem with your book is that if all you have in life is a hammer, every problem is a nail. And you've just written a book about cyber war, about cyber uses of forces. But that's not what happens. What happens Mm. on a day-to-day basis are, are, are the lower level cyber operations. But the lawyers don't have anything else. So when the lawyer is asked by his or her client in the FCO or the, the, or, or, or the State Department or the Department of Events, they're going to pull out the book and they're going to start analyzing it in terms of war. And that's going to be destabilizing. I found this to be a very, very compelling comment. So I went back to the group after meeting with Daniel. And we quickly in the last year, I mean something you remember, in the last year we generated nine quick rules on sovereignty and state responsibility and so forth. Those are the first rules in the book. Mm -hmm. So we knew when we came out of that process and into the next process that that's where the weight of effort had to go because that's where people dealt with on a day-to-day basis and we didn't want to create an environment in which the first question was always, was that an act of war? I mean, you probably heard recently there have been characterizations uh, the DNC hack has an act of war. We didn't want people to think about that because that's very, very destabilizing. Hence, Tallinn 2.0 mm-hmm. and 300 pages of dense text on peacetime cyber operations.
4: Yep. Megan, any, any color you'd like to add? I mean, so from the decision-making, I mean, within the White House, you know, a lot of times we hear International law. What's it? I mean, does it really make a difference? And
6: I think that obviously, it yeah, does no. Asking a Say lawyer yes. so right Yes. 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 <laughs> I think, it, in some ways, stating the obvious, it goes without saying that obviously the United States has been leading in this space, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine the United States not uh, taking a very measured approach and a very deliberate approach to this effort, and attempting to uh, work with allies and partners to try and yeah. I- ensure that this is a, a holistic effort, uh, and international law is, an, is a, a vehicle to that end, and obviously one that we support. Significantly. It, it,
4: it reminds me—I'll be the first one to throw out the Stuxnet—that um, you know reminds me of Dick Clark's comment that. He was betting that the U.S. was involved because it looked like lawyers were deeply involved in, write, in writing this code. Um, uh, sorry, sorry, for the, sorry for the delay there, we had a, uh. had a long question. Uh, Eric Jensen, Brigham Young University. Um, I, I know, Mike, right. that you have said on a number of occasions, and, and Lee's introduced it this way, that this was really about Lex Lata, but I've heard you say about Talon One that if you were trying to project what part of Talon One would change, it might be the treatment of of data as an object, I'm wondering if you would speculate as to what you think might change five years oh. from now with respect to the rules in Talon too. No.
3: Hmm.
5: Well, that's a, God, that's a great question. Um, what uh, Eric was a member of both international group of experts and a key player. Um, the, what he's referring to is in Tallinn. One, we came to the conclusion that the majority came to the conclusion that data is, I don't know if it's is or art, because I was educated at Southwest Texas State University, but I don't know if is, the question was, is data an object? Why would we care about such a uh, question? Mm. The reason is, under the law of armed conflict, you may not direct attacks against civilian objects. Thereby raising the question: If I'm conducting cyber operations that destroys or alters data, that manipulates data, is this an attack such that the operation, if directed against civilian data, constitutes not only a violation of the law of war but also a war crime? We concluded that it did not by looking at the history, negotiating history, and so forth. And I've always been very, very uneasy about that. And the reason I'm uneasy about that conclusion is, although we were trying to be objective, and although I believe that objectively we came to the right answer. What bothered me was that that allowed states' armed forces to take off the gloves a bit too much. Yeah. I mean, really, do we really want to say that if we're involved in an armed conflict with another state that's uh, cyber uh, capable, that that other state can do anything to data it wants so long as we all agree if if the loss of the data results in death, so example, destruction of medical records, which is specially protected anyways, can't be done. But do we really want to say all of that civilian data and all the systems, I don't think we want to say that. But on the other hand, in the battle space, because we have military officers here, you know that you already regularly engage in military operations that involve the destruction of of data, and you don't want to take that off the table, if only for PSYOPs. So we were stuck with this dilemma. My view is that rule will change, and I've proposed a remedy for this. I I believe that we should engage in practice where we Uh, as a matter of policy and ultimately as a matter of law take data involving essential civilian functions Mm -hmm. off the table. I've written an article on this, you can read it. And I think that that's starting to gain traction, I believe. I know that the ICRC uh, is starting to take this approach. I also realize that saying the ICRC has adopted your view is not necessarily convincing to everyone in the room, uh, but I do believe we're moving to this. So, with regard to tall and one, uh, Tallinn Two, I mean, I could duck your question by coming up with some Law of the Sea example, but I think it's going to be sovereignty. I think it's going to be sovereignty. Um, And the reason is, is we are not sure where the line lies with regard to the violation of the sovereignty of a state with respect to to remote cyber operations. Mm. There are some who say, who I have extraordinarily deep respect for, that say there is not even a rule of sovereignty, but rather sovereignty is a principle from which other rules emanate. Okay. I don't agree with that, but I, I respect the people who hold this view. However, as states begin to suffer cyber operations that are, that are harmful in nature, We are going to desperately search, as we are desperately searching for a legal, uh, how to characterize the DNC hacks, we are going to desperately search for a way to say to another state, you can't do that as a matter of law. And the easiest way to do that is by resort to a principle of sovereignty. Because we would all agree that states are sovereign over their territory, and we would all agree that states are sovereign over the individuals and their activities and the cyber infrastructure, the objects on their territory. So where I believe we will start to see some... Some firming up of the rules of the game, if you will, one way or another. Because remember, if you make the the, the normative wall of sovereignty too high, well, pursuant to the principle of sovereign equality, it blocks your operations. Mm-hmm. So we're it's we're going to be forced to see states struggle with: Is there a violation of sovereignty? Is there such a thing? And if so, where does that lie? And I think that debate will move pretty quickly. Has has. Hostile cyber operations unfold because if you're sitting in L or if you're over at the Department of Justice, if you're at Cybercom, if you're at DOD, Eric, you know because you're there for a year, people going to ask you the question. You can't just look at them, you know, like I say, we say in Texas, you can't just stand there like a deer in headlights staring at them. They're your client. You need to give them the best shot. And so I think that's where we're going to see most of the action.
4: And I think that in the U.S. we've made this a little bit tougher on ourselves because we have so focused since 2003, say, on cyber. You know, we might have been, you know, in the 90s, it was about information operations. We were... Including in thinking more deeply about influence, propaganda, about how Mm -hmm. all of the you Mm -hmm. know a little bit more Toffler, third wave kind of stuff, and how all of these fit together. And I, to me, data is fitting in with that information, right? What struck us about Sony or about the DNC is it was less about the cyber. It was less interesting from a cyber perspective than information. Right. So, any before I go to the next question? Okay, Uh, sir, thank you. Thanks for your patience.
7: Uh, hi, uh, Rick Weber at Inside Cybersecurity. Um, could the panel talk a little bit about where the manual comes down on the use of um, active defensive measures, and could you talk a little bit about
4: the role of non-state actors? Yeah. Well, it's a manual question, so <laughs> it's okay. Mike, you want to lead us off, and then just... <clears throat> so
5: the manual doesn't talk about active defensive measures. What the manual talks about (coughs) are responses. Now, uh, with respect to a robust response at the use of force level, the condition precedent, what you got to have first under the law of self-defense is an armed attack. So before you launch cyber operations that are themselves destructive or injurious, or effect a major, major impact on another state in, in Mike Schmidt's view, not the view of every group of, member of the group, before you do that, you've got to have that type of operation launched about you, uh, launched at you. So that's mm. the highest level. So active defense, you're shooting back at that level against that type of operation. That's what you've got to have. You've got to have that type of operation coming in.
6: Because why? Ma'am? Because.
5: Because of the law of self-defense, because the operation coming in must qualify under law as an armed attack before your right to engage in those sorts of robust cyber or kinetic operations uh, matures, kicks in. Now break, break. We'll move down one level. International law provides, and that's why this debate over is it illegal or not to manipulate elections at the next level down, going down in level of oomph, okay, Hmm. or it's a legal term, (laughs) University of Texas, second year. Uh, As we go down to the next level, we're in the realm of what are called countermeasures. And I'm not talking about the sort of countermeasures that that most people in the audience that are non-lawyers are thinking about, what you do in response. It's not for General Rockwell, it's not popping chaff uh, out of your uh, cosmic all-weather fighter bomber. Okay, That's not that kind of... I'm talking about countermeasures, a term of art in international law. And a countermeasure is defined as an act that would be unlawful but for the fact that it responds an act that's unlawful and is designed to force the other state back into compliance with the law. So state A commits a violation of international law against state B. State B gets to do what would otherwise be unlawful but not as a form of retaliation. When you hear retaliation, a lawyer hears retaliation, they swallow their tongue. There's no such thing in international law. But has a way to compel the other side back into a, a lawful course of action. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about a hackback that, for example, constitutes a violation of sovereignty or a wrongful intervention that allows the state to—I'm I'm, sorry—an uh, attack that then allows the victim state to hack back to do something equally bad to the other side because there's a condition of proportionality. Now, in the last level, the last level is called (coughs) retorsion. Retorsion is an unfriendly, but not unlawful, act uh, in international law. So, let's take two wildly hypothetical examples. Expelling diplomats and imposing sanctions. These were acts of retorsion, not a countermeasure, because although they may have been unfriendly, if you will, they are certainly not unlawful. It is the sovereign prerogative of states to expel diplomats and to impose sanctions. So those are your three levels. That's why it's so important to get the law right, because if you were listening carefully, what you learned was that your ability to shoot back, if you will, to respond, the robustness, the nature, the character of the response is dependent entirely upon the legal nature of the cyber operation directed against you.
4: So I, I'd like to make this practical. And, and for the microphones, we had a question. No, no, we don't have a question here. We had the, the next question was, was going to be here, and then I think the next question over there was the, uh, the gentleman there. And, and so if you want to get the mic over there, and then I'll come to them when, we're, when they're. I, I want to make this a little bit more pointed, because um, I've got David Lashway right in the front seat, and I know David has been in the trenches on seeing the terrible, you know, just day after day of intrusion after intrusion after mm-hmm. intrusion by state-sponsored mm-hmm. groups. And so I want to I pick on this active defense a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we might say is we've got the national mission force, you know, we, uh, national mission team at Cyber Command. Mm-hmm. We want to get them out there and into the, the adversary's infrastructure mm-hmm. um, to disrupt their command and control infrastructure because they're doing unto us. During a uh, war or during peacetime? Day to day, during peacetime, okay. during well, whatever you're calling today. <laughs> um, of, Or even saying, you know, we had, um, <coughs> I was saying the Russians get into our election, uh, you know, are messing with our elections. Let's get in there. We've got the national mission team. We know APT 28, APT 29. We know their infrastructure. Let's get those operators up at, at Cyber Command up into into the Russian infrastructure to disrupt their operations mm-hmm. uh, against our elections. Mm-hmm. I say I'm not usually bloodthirsty one, but on that one I was a bit bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. Tell me that was legal.
5: All right, it was legal. All right, good. All right, uh, a good lawyer tells his client whatever <laughs> the client
4: wants to hear
5: and makes it Don't sound imagine. profound and well thought out. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, this is DNC hack. Do you want me to analyze that? Uh, you raise uh, the, uh, no, you want to save that for the end or something? Yeah, is that well. the grand finale? <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: Go ahead.
6: Maybe, yeah, you'd, maybe you'd, yeah. uh, the second part of the question was the role of non-state actors and how the manual addresses the role of non-state actors. Yep. And while I have not had the privy of having extensive opportunity to review the contents of the manual, I did note that it talks about uh, what has been a question that is boggled, not boggled, but it has been on the minds of many in this space of... So non-state actors in some instances, can be proxies of a state, and so the manual talks about mm-hmm. I think right. the point at which non-state actors' uh, actions, whether when they're at, under the direction and control of a state, may be attributed to the state, which then, as David was uh, sorry as Mike was explaining, mm-hmm. opens up this uh, body of, of uh, rubric under which a state has to adjudicate its response. Yeah. So I think that maybe you transition from perhaps the DNC. Hack to other actors. I'm not allowed to talk yeah. about
5: the DNC hack. We've already established <laughs> no, no, no. that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I guess
6: I'm rolling back the clock. No, a bit I mean I think your legal analysis
5: ago. is 100% correct. You hit. You even. You hit exactly the right uh, terminology in international law. A state is responsible for the actions of a non-state actor, like a terrorist group, a hacker group, uh, when that state instructs, or directs, or controls. Um, we have a, a long section in the manual. We don't have time here to explain the difference between instructions and direction control. But the, the, the sort of catch-all phrase that lawyers used is when the state is in effective control of the non-state actors of the hacker group. In other words, it can tell the group what to do and what not to do. That's effective control, right? So in the event that the non-state actors are in effective control of a state, and those non-state actors do anything that would violate international law if it had been conducted by the state, then the state is responsible under international law, which is very, very important. Because remember the discussion of countermeasures. Countermeasures open, I mean, sorry, a violation of international law opens the door to countermeasures. So if you have a non-state group launching cyber opera- harmful cyber operations against the state, but you dis- determine that that group is in control, is in the effective control of the state, then you may launch countermeasures, operations that would otherwise be unlawful, mm-hmm. back against not only the group, but the state itself, because the, oper- it's, uh, the, the non-state actors are the equivalent of the armed forces, if you will. Uh, in a very rough an- analogy. And, and this is why so, I always
4: thought attri- we, we shouldn't be talking about attribution, we should be talking about determining national responsibility. Because to me, I think that national responsibility in, already, you know, includes that concept in a way that attribution necessarily doesn't, Rutger. Right?
7: Well, just on the the first part of the question on on, on active cyber defense, uh, I mean, fortunately the Netherlands has not been in a position yet where, where we've suffered an incident that would require us to, to think in that way. but. We're seeing it happen all around us. So it is Mm -hmm. very important for us to know that international law does offer us us these these options of of being able to respond. And you mentioned a few. I I, I believe there are a couple of others as well. Um, But the principle of being able to take unilateral action in some cases is is very important. And that's a principle that we're defending uh, in in ongoing international negotiations now. and again, we're not doing that because the manual says so. It, we're doing that because it's you know, an accepted principle of international law. Um, and again, you know, we're not asking anyone to, to sign, up, sign up on, on the manual. Not, we don't see it as an efficient document. Uh, we haven't asked any of the countries who participated in the, the Hague process to do so. Again, the point is that the manual is just a very, very helpful resource uh, that helps you get to a more uh, a higher level of granularity, uh, more detail when you when you when you're having these discussions. Uh,
4: and, and I love that because so often we think of international law as being the restraint of what you can't do. And what you were saying in there is, you know, by having more clarity, it can enable it can enable more cyber operations having that clarity. Don't get
7: me wrong. We we yep. primarily see international law as as a, as a shield, you know, something that protects us and something that. Uh, protects everyone. Uh, and it's it's the prohibitions uh, in mm-hmm. international law that I think are very relevant, you know, the, the main ones being the prohibition on the use of force, the prohibition on intervention, and uh, the prohibition on, on violating someone else's sovereignty. I think those are three key principles that, um, you know, had they been given more attention uh, during previous stages of this international debate, that, that could have, you know, provided reassurance to a lot of countries that have instead looked to other or alternative uh, made proposals for for new rules um, and, and tried to negotiate on that and, and um, you know yeah. we've pointed out that that is not necessary because we already have so much that covers that
4: and, and I didn't mean to stifle the, the the bit on the DNC I actually thought you had covered covered the DNC so
5: well the DNC is the, the most asked question uh, that we've gotten um, a lot from the press, so the DNC is an interesting example of what we call, or what I've called, okay. the gray zone of international oh. law. And,
4: and to catch everyone up, in case you missed it, DNC got hacked by the Russians. That was, uh, <laughs> it, was in the, it was in the it was in the news. So uh, yeah, Google Google that one. So yeah. So
5: uh, are we sure now that the Russians <laughs> yeah. did it?
4: Uh,
5: <coughs> so. The DNC hack. This was a very, very interesting case because this was, in my view, an illustration of the Russians operating in a legal gray zone. What, mm-hmm. what would you call the DNC hack? I mean, you, the best bet, the, the best argument is that it was a prohibited intervention under international law. International law prohibits one state from intervening in the internal affairs, what a lawyer calls domain réserve, a French term thereby justifying what the lawyer is charging you. The domain réserve, the area where another state has exclusive right to operate in a coercive manner. And coercive simply means it causes the other state to do something. That it would otherwise not do, or to refrain from taking an action that it would otherwise take. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the closest thing we can pin on the Russians. Because, and I should have said this earlier, because espionage, mm-hmm. a number of people in the audience will be pleased to know, is not a violation of international law. Okay, espionage is not the violation of international law. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so. Uh although the means by which espionage is carried out may violate international but not espionage. There's no, you know, you oh you engage in espionage. So the Russians get engaged in what is effectively espionage, but we can't pin the rose on them for that. So the only thing left is intervention. Clearly it's within our domain reserve. Indeed, indeed, in the manual which was written before this, when we wanted to illustrate domain reserve, elections is what we mm. came up with. It's the <laughs> example in the book. Because it's the Cleanest example of domain reservation, choosing one's own uh, representatives, yeah. so yeah. choosing one's own government. So the whole question boils down to the issue of the second element, which is coercion. Did this make us do something we would otherwise mm. not have done? Blah, 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 blah. So there are two views. Unfortunately, the manual doesn't handle this. We didn't anticipate this. Uh, the, and so there are two views, one represented by my colleague Lee's over here. Uh, And one represented by me. We we work together closely, and we've been arguing over this uh, for quite some time. And uh, and we're very close. We're we're just we just fall. Each of us falls just slightly on the other side of the line. So speaking for Lee's, what I would say, uh, if I were Lee's, what I what I would say is, listen. Okay, espionage is not unlawful. Okay, so let's move on from that. That leaves intervention. Are you really telling me that providing an electorate in a liberal democracy with truthful material is intervention? I mean, for crying out loud, we've been doing that for centuries. I mean, I remember the Cold War. We have whole organizations devoted to that. So it can't possibly be coercion to be providing people information upon which they will make a better informed decision. That's option one, and that's entirely reasonable. That's an entirely reasonable legal conclusion. It's not the conclusion I've drawn. I'm on the other side, but just slightly over the line. What I say is, even though the fact that they violated our domestic law is not usually relevant in an international law analysis, what states, laws they have, it Mm -hmm. doesn't have any bearing on what international law is. In this case, there was a manipulation of our process. In a way, it was never intended to be manipulated. I mean, you know, they they uh, committed a crime in order to acquire the information and released it in a manner that arguably could have influenced. By the way, it doesn't have to influence the election as long as there was an attempt. It's a violation of international law. Uh, but it was the manipulation of the process of mm. us selecting a leader. I, I, I happen to believe this view is reasonable, okay? Uh, that should come as no surprise, but I think both views are reasonable. Now, why is this important? It's important because these gray areas are areas where we will say states intentionally operate in. Why? Because it's I mean, trust me, Estonians are not friends of the Russians, okay? Uh, but nevertheless, a, a spectacular Estonian attorney has objectively come to the conclusion it wasn't a violation. So the In this case, the Russians have selected a a, an area of law in which to operate, in which it will be hard for states to come to a consensus that they have violated international law. We will be squabbling among Mm. each other in the interagency process and the international process over did they do it and did they violate international law or not? If only because, remember, if they did violate international law, that opens up the notion of countermeasures, which enables us to respond much, much more robustly. Indeed, we responded in a relatively mild manner. This is not criticism of the response, but we responded in a legally mild manner known as retorsion. So, uh, you know, I think we can expect to see this if states don't, you know, frankly, move forward with a little more dispatch and a little more focus, Mm. uh, our opponents are going to play in this gray area. Remember, I mean, the Russians are masters. It's not that they're bad lawyers. It's quite the opposite. It's that they're spectacular lawyers. They're spectacular. And we saw this in the Ukraine. I mean, does anyone remember that the Ukraine and Russia are still at war as a matter of law? that Russia is in belligerent occupation of Ukrainian territory. But it's hard to remember that because they were so masterful in the way they did it, the little green men, the election with the annexation. uh, This is legally fuzzy stuff, intentionally fuzzy, Mm -hmm. intentionally fuzzy. And so I think we need to move out with a bit more dispatch in these gray areas of international law. And, frankly, it's our hope that the manual help states identify those gray areas so they know where to focus their effort as they move forward.
4: And and I was reading a, uh, a an essay by Stanley Hoffman on international law. And and it really struck me in in, in a quote, international law is merely a magnifying mirror that reflects faithfully and crucially the essence and logic of international politics. The nature of the international system condemns international law to all the weaknesses and perversions that it is so easy to deride. Right, because when we're hearing this, we're saying, well, great, I mean, this is so messy, this isn't gonna be any help. But that's faithfully reflecting that the international system is messy itself. Thanks for Hello. patience. Uh, yes, Andrew Ferguson from the Institute for Defense Analyses. Um, now that you guys have put out Talent 2 and it's a lot more looking at sort of the messy or gray area of um, states' interaction in the international system, I wanted to ask how you guys addressed um, in this new manual a lot of the new technology that has come mm-hmm. up, a lot of the old laws. Um, the United States is a perfect example of this, um, a lot of the cyber operations laws that are held, the Cybercom is held to were written back in the 80s and early 90s before we have things like IoT and things like that. So how did you guys address this in the new Talon Manual? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for patience.
5: Well, I mean, we didn't have much of a struggle to be honest with you. I mean, um, international law is designed to international law is kind of fuzzy. If you haven't figured that out, you probably haven't been paying much attention it's a little bit fuzzy and it's fuzzy intentionally because international law is a product of a discussion among states and states come to the table with from very different perspectives but international law is designed to survive in the future so when the diplomats get together to try and come up with an international norm, it will by nature be vague just by virtue of the process, but it will to some extent be vague because you want it to survive. So it is not an uncommon thing for a treaty to predate the advent of Technology, whether it be cyber, or the the flavor of the day is in international law is currently uh, uh, robotics and AI and so forth. What we usually find is that initially, initially, the international legal community flails around. Oh, my God, you know, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, this uh, international law needs to be changed. I'm like, we need a new Geneva Convention, da 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 da, da. And I'm old enough, and some of the people are, uh, to remember, for example, the advent of precision weapons. I mean, when we got PGMs, and it's like, big lawyer flail, we've got to use it every time, uh, you know, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, because we were watching the first Gulf War, you know, missiles go through windows and so. When everyone drinks a, a glass of calm down, okay, when we get past the initial uh, excitement, what we feel, find is that international law is pretty good at anticipating new things. So whether... Uh, I'll give you an example that'll, that is my embarrassment, okay? Uh, we have him in the audience, Brett. There's Brett there. He's got a big band-aid on his head, I hope. Uh, so Brett is a, a genius techie guy from the Naval Postgraduate School, I think, still. He was uh, one of our technical advisors, and perhaps the most important one in Tallinn 1.0. Brett kept using this term "cloud." Now, at this point, I did not even have a phone—not an iPhone 7, like no phone. Okay, I had a phone; it was in my hotel room. Okay, and Brett kept talking about everyone's talking about the cloud. This, the cloud, that, the cloud, that—what the hell the cloud was? What are these guys talking about? You know, and. So I thought the cloud was yeah, yeah. like up there because that's why they must have called it the cloud. I mean, techies are pretty smart, so why would you call cloud anything other than something up there? Flo- now, I didn't think it was before you think I'm the village idiot. I didn't think it was a cloud, okay? <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I did think that it was somehow like radio waves. Now, I kept asking him, like, well, I don't explain, explain, explain. Eventually, I understood that it was about stuff, another University of Texas legal term, stuff, Okay, It was about servers and routers and submarine cables and all of this. Now, once I get this as a lawyer, now I understand. Because the principle of sovereignty applies to stuff on your territory, which meant that you have jurisdiction over it, you can regulate it, you have the right to protect it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything started to fall into, into, into place. So we generally find that international law, and we found that international law, if, if we thought hard about it, it was a very adaptable body of law. That was not always the case. And you, you, there was a question uh, on, on the use of force. I think I would be fair to say we struggled with the use of force because this was different. I mean, I, I used to be a targeting officer. Stuff blows up. I got that. But this notion of causing harm through non-kinetic means, this was hard. This was hard. But by and large, it wasn't problematic. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. No, yeah.
4: no, no, I mean, Rucker was talking to get
7: it Yeah, just to Thanks, add to what Mike said, um, I mean, one of the reasons that the Netherlands is so skeptical about the need for a new treaty or, or new binding legal rules is that we, uh, you know, we've, as I said, we, we think that the current legal regime is, is, is largely sufficient. Uh, exactly because the underlying principles are, are to a large degree universal and they're, they're technology neutral um, now you know it could eventually be the case that that we come to the conclusion that that we we need something else um, and that's why we're having this international conversation about the the norms the the in the ungge we're having this conversation about what's called uh, you know, non-binding voluntary uh, uh, norms of responsible state behavior which are seen as additional uh, 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 norms uh, in addition to what we have uh, legally um, and one of the reasons I think that international law is, 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 is largely sufficient is that it, most of it is based on, on what we call the effects based approach mm-hmm. um, it's not about the specific cause or the specific t- technology it's about the effect that's generated by that. And um, you know, that is the same whether you use uh, a, a, a PGM or a, or a cyber op.
4: And the, uh, the, the talk on the new treaty, it sorry, I was in 2010, there was a, uh, an important American lawyer that was talking about um, the need that we did need, um, that, that existing laws weren't enough, but it would be very, very easy for us to adapt to this. All we needed to do was to change the North Atlantic Treaty all we need to do is change the gene of a convention, and all we need to do was modify the UN Charter, and that, there, and that, that would bring, that would, that would and that's all we had to do, and so the, I think we, we all felt great at that. Uh, sir, over here, and then we're gonna go to David uh, in, the, in the front.
7: Hi, Greg Nojime, Center for Democracy and Technology. Thanks for coming, it's Greg. It's good to see you. Hi, um, so practical question. Um, Say, Mike, you were in the Trump administration at yeah, state. Yeah, okay.
5: This is a hypothetical, right? Hypothetically speaking,
7: <laughs> right. And um, something like the Sony hack. Say the Sony hack happened, uh-huh. and you knew that your uh, client wanted to do something really aggressive. Uh-huh. Name three aggressive things that could be done in uh-huh. a situation like the Sony hack that uh-huh. weren't done. Uh-huh. Under, so, that could be done under the uh, consistent with the man huh
5: so um, it's North Korea, right so this is not a fair hypothetical <laughs> uh, so the first thing you could do is shoot back at their private cyber infrastructure as well. You could, as a state, do so because I believe the Sony hack was, in fact, a violation of U.S. sovereignty uh, because it was to some, it was robust enough to constitute a violation. And you violate sovereignty irrespective of whether the uh, the target of the cyber operation is private or government. Uh, and you violate it, by the way, irrespective of the nationality of the cyber infrastructure. It's on your territory. You enjoy the right to protect it. And 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 any operation directed against this violation of your sovereignty, thereby opening the door to countermeasures. And I think we could reasonably conclude that the North Koreans were uh, likely to do it again. So the first thing I would do is shoot back at their robust private cyber infrastructure. <laughs> uh, and I believe that you could do that in a way that really bricked it and so forth. Uh, the other thing, I, the second thing that, that comes to mind is that what I would do is or what I could do, not would do, could do, would be to disrupt their government functions. Because again, you're not supposed to disrupt the inherently governmental functions of another state, but if the door is open by virtue of their internationally wrongful act, a, a proper countermeasure would be to disrupt the functioning of their government. I'm not quite sure how that works in North Korea, but, uh, but at any rate. And then the third thing we need to remember is that countermeasures can be taken, they don't have to be in kind at all. So we could, for example, we could, uh, we could this is a, a far-fetched uh, example, but if we had North Korean ships that would normally transit through our uh, territorial sea in what's called innocent passage, we could, we could preclude, and that's a legal right under the Law of the Sea Treaty and conventional Law of the Sea, we could say, no, you're not going to do that anymore. Hmm we're going to block that off. Because countermeasures can be different. It's just you take an action designed to get them to knock it off. So I've given you three examples that would normally be unlawful, but because their operation represented a violation of our sovereignty, we're permitted to do that, although only for the purpose of ensuring that they don't conduct further operations against anything on the United States, uh, any US territory.
4: I've got one quick follow up, Um, Megan. You were around some of those decisions. I'm, not, I'm curious if you can say anything about this, and then uh, we, are getting, we are getting close to time, so we'll get David uh, in the front. There's a few others that had their hands up. I'll, tr- I'll try to get to you. Um, if the, it seemed like some of the attacks from Sony were taking place from within China, or from other countries. Um, and so what, what do we know about this if that country was not taking steps? I mean, China knew that they were there what steps might we have taken with regard to those other countries? For me. For you. And then, mm-hmm. and then see, I'm, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. Megan can say, so I'm giving her time to think I about what... There, so. yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I can speculate all I Yeah, want. yeah, great. Good. So, good. We'll, take, we'll take it all. So
5: to restate the, uh, the question, what if the, are they conducted by the North Koreans from China? Yes. Okay. Conducted so. by state A from territory in state B uh, into state C. In this particular case, the case from which the operation, I'm sorry, the state from which the operations are being conducted has what is called a due diligence obligation under international law. A due diligence obligation states that a state that is aware that harmful operations, and I mean significantly harmful, not minor stuff, but significantly harmful operations are emanating from their territory, have a legal obligation to put an end to those operations, whether those operations be mounted by another state or by non-state actors. If, If the territorial state breaches this obligation, fails to comply with the obligation of due diligence, then that state has violated international law. The state is not responsible for the operations. Mm-hmm. The state is responsible for its breach of its obligation to, if you will, ensure its territory is not used for uh, acts uh, against another state. Which means that now, in your hypothetical, China, in mind state B, uh, which Mine's means not hypothetical. which means that uh, okay which means that now this opens the door to countermeasures against China to compel China to get them to knock it off
4: now because, dun, dun, dun. No.
5: yeah that's <laughs> But I, I should hasten to add, you know, you got a 600-plus page book on your lap. It's not quite that easy as a matter of law. There are lots and lots of, of uh, steps you go through. You should normally place them on notice. The countermeasure must be proportionate. I could go on and yep. on and on
4: and on. Uh, and Megan, anything quick? And then if you can get the mic here in, uh, for David in the front, and then um, and then David will close us out.
6: So I'll play the floor. Can you... Anything quick on which which aspect? Yeah, I mean, of so it was Sony? a
4: question about 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 Sony and North Korea and, and and three things that we might have done back. I mean, how can you give us a sense of how those conversations happen inside the sit room? I mean, can you can you can you give us any um, any oomph? No, you can't. Okay. Well, <laughs> Dave, <laughs> David Edelman, ladies and gentlemen.
6: I think. Uh, First of all, it's important to note, obviously, it's it's stating the obvious, but I think in some countries it may not be the case. There is a conversation about this. There isn't just an immediate reaction. uh, And that, I would argue, is is a state's obligation under international law to assess what's happened to it to the extent that it can, undertake an attribution analysis, um, which we haven't talked about, but I think it would be Mm -hmm. useful for the group to understand the way the book comes out on attribution. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to how does this work out essentially there's a, a question that's put to the interagency which is give us a set of options here and the, and a timeline some of which are usually mm. ridiculously unreasonable but in mm-hmm. this case one has to act quickly uh you, in most cases it, it, i think many folks feel that the reaction was not quick enough yeah. uh mm. both in the case of sony or sony as well as uh the dnc mm. space but um a list of options are presented and discussed and yeah, yeah, that's the that's the role that's of the it. National Security Council is to give the, the leadership options, and the, ultimately the policy call is for the the President to make.
5: Okay. David, last, to last comment. answer the attribution question? So uh, no, a I mean, this is where,
6: question. Um, this might we've got the last segment. five minutes. We've got last five minutes. So. Hi. Uh, David Edelman. Sorry. I had Megan's old job at the NSC in what feels like the Jurassic era. Um, a question for all of you. I'm wondering, Professor Schmidt in particular, but if you could help us go from the gray area to the flashpoint, sort of taking your invitation of beyond Talon 2.0. If you are having a conversation with states, indeed the conversation that you did have with states. What are those areas in which the international legal community has the greatest coalescence in which states are most likely to disagree? In other words, where there's pretty clear consensus about what the law says, and yet if you go and brief around the world the various governments, where do you anticipate those two or three areas in which the governments will find those conclusions to be most uncomfortable or most at odds with what their plans are right now?
5: Well, there are two, because we, thanks to our our friends, the Dutch, we had the opportunity to speak robustly with states in a really non-attribution environment and so forth. The two, I would say, well, maybe I'll add three. Um, The first one is due diligence, the Mm -hmm. principle that I've just mentioned. Because some states, wrongly and confusedly, pushed back on due diligence. <laughs> I'm looking at my friend Gary Korn, the SJ of Cybercom here. Uh, wrongly pushed back on due diligence because what they said is, holy cow, you're making me shoulder this incredible uh, burden. Do you know how many hostile operations are mounted from the territory of State X? We gave him a glass of water. It was a glass of calm down. Okay. Because we told them that under international law, the obligation is only one of feasibility. And that, that's generally the obligation of international law. You don't have to do everything you can. You have to do what's feasible and reasonable in the circumstances. And with respect to the United States, and I'm not just highlighting the United States, but I happen to believe that the United States does, in fact, do that. If there are hostile operations hurting other states, I believe we take action. Uh, there are people in, that know better than me, but I believe that. The second reason that I said you need to embrace the notion of due diligence is because countermeasures are not available to actions taken by non-state actors. They're actions against states that for states breaching their obligation. So holy cow, does that mean that if I get a non-state actor attack, all I, uh, uh, operation against me, all I can do is lock them up? The answer is no, because in the China example, The other state is in breach of a due diligence obligation. You may respond to the breach of the due diligence obligation. And if you remember the question from Greg, I can respond and it doesn't have to be in kind. So how do I do that? I target the non-state actors. And I'm doing that. I'm breaching the sovereignty of that state to shoot back at them. But due diligence raised some eyebrows. Recently, the question of sovereignty has come up. Mm -hmm. It did not come up much at all that I can remember, but much during our deliberations with states, but it subsequently surfaced, and there is a view uh, that's being floated by serious players that says that sovereignty is, in fact, a foundational principle. I mean, it's the peace of Westphalia. Come on. It's the principle. It's the mother of all principles. Sovereignty. But it isn't a rule. You don't breach sovereignty. You don't break the rule. You look to sovereignty as the source of these others. I'm concerned that's something that no member of the international group of experts agreed with. And I haven't heard it much. But recently it's gotten some traction and I'm a little bit nervous about that. And then there's one state, not one state, there was a view on the part of states that said, listen, if you're going to pin the rose on us, attribution you have to produce the evidence. Show us. If you before you are led, show us. To which I believe That may be good policy, that may be wise, it may make you ethical, but it sure as heck is not an obligation of international law. You may choose to reveal your evidence or not choose to reveal your evidence. If you find yourself before an international tribunal or an arbitral panel, they will have rules of evidence that will apply, but just on a day-to-day. And then just quickly, since it's attribution, Megan's excellent point, attribution. What's the standard of attribution? If you find yourself before a tribunal, before an arbitral panel, the tribunal or arbitral panel will impose its own rules. If you find yourself in a criminal court, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. If you find yourself in a civil suit, it's preponderance of the evidence, okay? Uh, In international law, tribunals have their own standards in that fashion as well. But if you're not before a court, then the rule is that states must act. As reasonable states do, and same or similar circumstances for the lawyers in the audience, that's the old tort law rule. Act reasonably. However, there is one exception the majority of the group of experts felt, and it's an important one. We have talked tonight about countermeasures over and over and over. The international group of experts. The majority of them took the position that with respect to countermeasures, remember unlawful act responding to an unlawful act, you got to get it right. If you get attribution wrong and you respond, then you are responsible for that international wrongful act. Uh, Lawyers would say there has been no preclusion of the wrongfulness of that activity.
4: it struck me. I heard a discussion by um, renowned scholars one time, and they were arguing about how much attribution is enough. And what it, it reminded me all through what you were saying is it depends what you want to do. You know, it depends the amount on what the circumstances are. On, right.
5: It depends on how severe. Great. I mean, uh, if we're talking about a minor incident, well, you probably got to get the attribution almost 100% correct because the consequences are low. But if you're taking extraordinary, you know, something extraordinary is happening to you, then you can take... You can operate with less certainty. Why? Because you're taking hits. That's reasonable.
4: And, and the more attribution you have, the more precise your attribution can be. The more policy options it unlocks for those right. policymakers. Okay. Um, concluding remarks. We uh, we're touch over time. My apologies for keeping us a little bit over. And for those that had questions, I know. Um, I, I recognize some of you and I didn't get to you and so my apologies as moderator for that. Um, but any final, final comments, Megan and Rutger? And maybe Rutger, if you can also talk, maybe just what, what else the Netherlands has plans? I know you've got quite quite a bit.
7: Well, I, I mean, I talked about the need to to reach common understandings. Uh, so, I mean, the main reason that we launched the the, the Hague process was to promote dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, to my knowledge, this was really the first time that we had uh, this type of discussion at this level of detail. Um, again, it's it's not intended to replace uh, other ongoing negotiations or or to uh, forgo those conclusions. Um, but it is valuable in, it, in and of itself to, to have this conversation. And, and you know we're, we're hoping to continue that. We have a number of events planned. Uh, we're taking the show on the road to, to The Hague, to uh, Canberra, to uh, Tallinn, and, and a number of other uh, countries. Um, the, the, the type of courses that the CCDCOE offers on, on international law Um, We intend to copy those and offer them to to other parts of the world Um, and, you know, hopefully if we do have the chance, we hope to continue uh, the consultation meetings uh, now that the manual is out. Um, I mean, as has been pointed out, it doesn't provide all the answers, Uh, in fact, you know, this this is not... Actually, it does. This is (laughs) not... (laughs) It clearly (laughs) hasn't read it. Well, some might see it not as the end of the conversation, but as the start of the conversation, and, right. um, a diplomat. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that would be valuable to have. Uh, if we can play a role in that, we'll, we'll certainly do so. Um, um, but I'd just like to thank Mike for all his work. And, um, and, and
4: thanks to the Kingdom of the Netherlands for, for all yeah. your support as, as part of the process. Megan, any last comments? Uh,
7: just
6: that I, as I started to say in the beginning, uh, I think that one of the best things that this manual does is it provides a, an opportunity for conversation and in some ways, although the diplomats in the room may uh, want to hang me for this, in some ways that's a confidence building measure. So uh-huh. the opportunity to have mm-hmm. some dialogue about uh, action in this space that you know 10 years ago, nobody was really willing to talk about um, for fear that we might give the other guys some ideas or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you know, going on the road, I think is a great opportunity and hopefully the, the dialogue can continue.
4: Great. Um, I want to point out two upcoming events. Um, uh, one, the Cyber 912 Student Challenge from the Atlanta Council. We're going to be holding it 17 and 18 March at American University. And Eric Novotny, I see here in the audience. This is our, the students coming together, a university student, saying there's a large-scale cyber incident going on what should our response be? Mr. President, no one's died yet, it's too early for NATO Article 5, but let's consider Article 4 sanctions and indictments. And so I'm sure that they're going to be using this manual and the things in it as they think about what those responses should be. Uh, we'd love to have people here come to be observers on that um, or some, and, and, and as judges. We have 48 teams this year. So almost 200 students are gonna be coming together and, um, and working their way through, um, and as well as Air Force Academy, Military Academy, and Naval Academy. and So we'll have our many many commanders-in-chief. Um, and also, of course, SciCon this year in Tallinn. And so I hope to see you all out in Tallinn this year uh, for SciCon. Please give our thanks to the panelists.
3: Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at AtlanticCouncil.org. And follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.